let's open our Bibles to the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. Open your Bible, navigate on your device to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 this morning. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. The topic, when John sees Jesus in his glory, he falls down as dead. The title of our message, Drop Dead Glorious. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here today. Uh, we're going to read today, Lord, how you are in a special way in the midst of the church when it gathers. Knowing that going in, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to what you want to say to us, that you would communicate in that spot, Lord, between the soul and the spirit where only the word of God can reach. Those who need comfort, comfort, Lord. Those who need encouragement, encourage. In fact, Lord, whatever it is we really need spiritually, I pray that we would see you providing it today. Help us as we go verse by verse through this text, Lord, to understand the word as it was written to the first century and what it means for us today. We thank you and we praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I suppose it was inevitable. And I'm relieved that I don't need to hide it anymore. Feels like a weight has been lifted. Pam caught me online looking at Pinterest. Pinterest tends to be, let's say, a little feminine. More than two-thirds of Pinterest base are women. More than 80% of women in the U.S. ages 18 to 64 are pinners. Among the top Pinterest searches are DIY crafts, home decor, and hair and beauty. I came to the hard realization that less than 10% of my followers on Pinterest are men. Now, my boards are somewhat manly, I think. I have coffee picks, pool to pond conversion. Huh? That's a Tim the Tool Man kind of thing. Tattoos. But I also have Let's Try Vegan and Punch Recipes. So there I was scrolling on Pinterest when a suggested pin appeared. Repurposed oil lamps. How could anyone resist? There amongst oil lamps being used as candy jars and vases and candle holders was something sublime. DIY plans for wiring oil lamps to plug into an outlet. I'll let you know how it goes after I first try the surefire remedy for keeping cats out of your yard. By the way, nothing I've ever tried from Pinterest works. Oil lamps figure prominently in our verses. John sees seven golden lampstands, he says, and in the midst of the seven, one like the Son of Man. This entire passage is about light, brilliance, and shining. When he was on the earth, Jesus said that he was the light of the world. That's from John 8, 12. The Lord said to us, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 14 and 16. Along those lines, I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, let your light shine and you will be buffeted by tribulation. And number two, let your light shine and you will be brightened by trimming. Let's see about tribulation in verse 9. Now, late in the first century, the Apostle John was still burning brightly for the Lord. It landed him in hot oil, literally. In what he called the second persecution under Roman Emperor Domitian, John Fox, who is the author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, wrote the following. 
He said, among the numerous martyrs that suffered during this persecution was St. John, who was boiled in oil and afterwards banished to Patmos. And so they weren't able to boil him, and so they banished him. Tertullian, an early church figure, in his writing, Prescription Against Heretics, wrote, How happy is its church on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where the apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and thence remitted to his island exile. John's light for Jesus, his sharing of the gospel, had attracted trouble for him. But in his trouble, he shone all the more brightly. And so verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Patmos is some 50 miles off of the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. It has the shape of an hourglass. It's small. It's about 13 square miles in area. For comparison, the city of Hanford is about 16 square miles in area. At least that's what the Google says. I've heard it said that John was forced to work either mining salt or quarrying marble. Did I mention he was in his 90s at the time? Now, all that's possible, but it's equally possible that John was under house arrest. Patmos was not a penal colony like Ruripenthe. It had a harbor and a town and a temple to Artemis. There was a temple to Apollo. They might have found a temple to Dionysus, a temple to Aphrodite. There was a gymnasium and there was a stadium. So it was a settled island. Rome did send prisoners there to exile them because you couldn't get off the island. Uh, but it, it wasn't necessarily a penal colony. And so they couldn't boil John, so they banished him. Little did the Romans know that God would use John's time on Patmos as a working sabbatical to receive and to write the revelation. I read that ships could find safe harbor from storms there. And I was thinking how that John's banishment was a safe harbor for him during the storms of persecution. And so he was still being oppressed and persecuted, but instead of being boiled in oil, uh, he was banished to this island where he would receive this wonderful revelation. John's crime, the nefarious activity he was sent away for was, he says, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was boiled and banished because he was a Christian sharing his testimony. He was sharing the gospel and the testimony that Jesus was God come in human flesh to die on the cross and that he rose from the dead and that there was salvation only in him. And so John, like the other apostles and the other Christians of that era, would share this life-giving message of Jesus Christ, telling people that they could live forever in heaven in glory with no sin and no tears, how that uh, they could uh, have purpose and meaning in their life, how they could know the living God, how there could be hope in the most hopeless of situations. And those who didn't believe that message, and especially the government, said, we're going to kill you for that. How dare you give people hope and talk about love and uh, heal people and do these kinds of things? It, it doesn't make any sense spiritually unless you factor in the spiritual warfare that's taking place behind the scenes, that the devil is the god of this earth, the ruler of this earth, and that there is an intense spiritual warfare. I mean, imagine going to somebody and say, how would you like to live forever in heaven? And they say, you need to be boiled in oil for a message like that. My goodness, how dare you say something like that? 
He was sharing the gospel, and he was one of the originals. More than that, he'd been invited to the inner circle along with Peter and James. He several times refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was an apostle, yet for all that, he calls himself their brother and companion. He was content to identify with every other Christian as a brother or a sister, no more, no less. Only among Christians can there be a true equality. We might even say that in Christ, all men are recreated equal because you share in the same spirit in a way that men and women in the world cannot. I might have a different office or function or talent or gifting in the church. We are complementarian, that's true. But we are on absolutely equal ground when it comes to the love of God that is ours through Jesus Christ. All of us is equal in receiving that love. He loves no one better than another. And we, he loves Christ most of all, and he sees us as in Christ. And so God loves us as much as he loves Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ loved us enough to die for us. Now, they were accompanying one another as companions on the road to heaven. As we sometimes sing, it's a road marked with suffering and therefore requires the sharing of burdens with one another. John described our time on earth journeying heavenward as the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Here's what I think he means by that trio of phrases. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. That's from John 16, verse 33. I know that this isn't referring to the great tribulation because a little later in this book, Jesus promises us that the church will not go through that period of time on earth. The tribulation John spoke about refers to the oppression and persecution during the church age right now that targets believers. At the same time that we are promised tribulation, we are assured of the kingdom Jesus will return for us and then return with us to establish the literal kingdom of God on the earth. The time of waiting for the kingdom is to be characterized by the patience of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't a big dose of patience that we get simply by asking. In the Bible, we're told tribulation works patience, or when you're in trouble for being a Christian, it produces patience. You don't get patience first, you get trouble first. Those of you who pray for patience might want to adjust your prayer life because you're praying for trouble. Plenty of that's coming on its own. You don't need to pray for it. But the idea is that you find your supernatural patience in your trouble provided by the Lord. You know, sometimes you look at people and you think, man, I don't know as a Christian if I could do that or go through that. It's because you're not being asked to do that or go through that. There's, there's, you don't need to have a reservoir of grace and patience. You, you just need to know that it will be there when you need it. And so tribulation will work patience for you. Light attracts. In John's case, his light attracted tribulation. If he had kept quiet, if he had just gone to Patmos on his own to vacation on, or, or retired, uh, none of this would have happened to him. But he kept burning brightly for the Lord, and it attracted tribulation. If we shine as the light of the world, distinctly Christian trouble will come our way at some point. Not the general trouble that all people have in the world, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about specifically oppression and persecution because you're a Christian. And as you shine, eventually, maybe uh, in a great way or a small way, that will come to you. Now let your light shine and you'll be brightened by trimming. That's the rest of the verses that we have before us. 
Oil lamps, very simple. The oil in a reservoir produces light when a cloth wick is lit. The wick fails to burn away because it is constantly absorbing fuel which burns instead of the cloth. Oil lamps need tending. They need someone to supply the oil and to keep the wick trimmed. Jesus presents himself to John as being in the midst of seven lampstands and the indication is he is the person that is trimming them and tending to them. And so verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. In the spirit indicates an enhanced spiritual state which John received the revelation. Now is the Lord's day a reference to Sunday or is it signifying the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment upon the earth that is prophesied in the Old Testament and realized in this book? Either John was having an exceptional Sunday in the Spirit, or he was transported forward in time by God the Holy Spirit to somehow witness the events of the day of the Lord. It really doesn't matter if the Lord's Day is Sunday or the day of the Lord or something else entirely. What matters is that what John saw was written down as Scripture under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, and we have it today. Now, I'm not saying it's not an important thing to talk about or that it can't uh, be studied, but one thing I've learned over the years, when there are issues like this, you know, half of the, this side of the aisle says, it's the Lord's day, it's Sunday. And the other half says, no, no, it has to be the day of the Lord. And it can't be resolved by uh, brilliant thinking Christian men and women, then it's not going to be resolved. And it's not something we need to worry about or take a position on. I mean, I can't see being really excited about one or the other. What we need to be excited about is that however John received the revelation, he received the revelation. And we have that. And that's the part that we need to concentrate on. It says here, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. It wasn't a trumpet. It functioned as a trumpet. Trumpets were sounded for lots of reasons, but among them, they gathered the people of God and they provided instruction for their movements. Describing Jesus' voice like a trumpet in conjunction with the mention of the seven churches in the next few verses indicates that he was gathering the churches to instruct them. And so verse 11 saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Once again, we're told that Jesus is God's entire alphabet. He's every word he wants to say to mankind. He was the first in that he created all things, he is the last in that he will bring all things to their prophesied consummation. John was to write one book to these seven churches. Even though there are individual letters to each of these churches, everything in the Revelation was for all of them. And it's for all of us. As we saw last time we were together, uh, the letters each end, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. So whatever was said to any of the churches is said to all of them and to us unto today. Now this would have written, been written on a scroll and by the time he was finished, this scroll would have been approximately 15 feet long unrolled. And so first service I had an idea to invent the scrolled Bible, right? There's all kinds of, there's probably 20 different Bibles represented here. The Ryrie Study Bible, the MacArthur Bible, the Chuck Smith Bible, the Chronological Bible, the, you know, it goes on and on. But as far as I know, there's no scroll Bible. 
And so I could be up here on Sunday morning, you know, reading from the scroll. We'd have to go this way and have one of the deacons out in the courtyard because it'd be a lot longer than, well, Revelation alone would be 15 feet, right? And I don't, you think I got 15 feet? Yeah, I, I, we could probably do that. But uh, I think it'd be kind of cool. And you guys think it's stupid until it comes out on CBD and then you're going to all buy it and say, hey, look at the scroll Bible. <laughs> all right. Verse 12. You were hoping I lost my place, but I didn't. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, maybe it's just me, but I am stunned by what John doesn't see. He doesn't see Jesus, not at first. He sees the lampstands. Then he sees Jesus. Even though in verse 16 we're going to be told Jesus' countenance was like the sun shining in its strength, John saw the seven lampstands first. As we're going to see, the lampstands represent the churches on the earth. It's a strong indicator that Jesus is seen, he is unveiled to the world as he lights up his church. That he can be seen lighting up his church. The seven golden lampstands are reminiscent of that menorah in the holy place in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. That was a particularly beautiful oil lamp with seven bowls for oil that the priest would tend all the time. The menorah and these lampstands suggest the same thing. God's people on earth were then and we are now to bear witness to non-believers of the glory of God. They were and we are to be God's spiritual light in the present darkness of the world. Verse 13, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Jesus is in the midst of the gathered church, tending to the light, and it's a powerful invitation to Christians to regularly meet with him in a local fellowship. Now, we always point out, you can meet with Jesus anywhere, anytime. That's one of the great privileges of the new covenant. We don't have to go to the temple. We are the temple of the Spirit individually and collectively. But that's not to say that Jesus doesn't meet us in a special way when we gather as the church. Because he says, guys, I am in the midst of the lampstands, and the lampstands are the church of Ephesus and the church of Sardis and the church of Pergamos and these other churches. It's not Starbucks in those cities. It's not the golf course. It's not your house. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But he says, if you want to meet with me in a very special way, I'm going to be at church. And so it's like on Monday, we should get in the mail, save the date, save Sunday, because Jesus wants to meet with you. And then Saturday night, a reminder phone call saying, church is at 8.15 and 10.15 tomorrow, where Jesus says he will be in the midst of the lampstand. And so we should just expect something greater uh, when we're all together ministering to the Lord and having him minister to us. Now, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man 88 times in the New Testament. Son of Man is a reference to a prophecy of Daniel, Daniel 7.13, where we read, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. It turns out that is a messianic title. It is a title that belongs to the Messiah of Israel, Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is also used of humans many times in the Bible. When Jesus used this title of himself, 
He was claiming to be a son of man, a human being, who was the unique son of man in Daniel. You and I could say, I could say to you, I'm a son of man, but I can't say to you, I'm the son of man from the book of Daniel. Jesus is that person. His attire was similar to that of a priest. Just like the temple priest would tend to the lamp in the temple, so Jesus tends to his lampstands who are his temple. Verse 14 and 15, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. Notice John keeps using the word like or as. Revelation is filled with symbols and signs, but sometimes it has allegories and metaphors and illustrations of its own. And so Jesus does not have brass feet. He doesn't lug along, you know, trying to get one foot over the other. It's not like on Downton Abbey. Didn't somebody have a wooden foot on Downton Abbey? Another show I can't stand. But anyway, <laughs> he had to drag that thing along all the time. But that, it, Jesus doesn't have brass feet. He has feet as if they were brass. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, wait a minute, Gene. You're skipping over these descriptive phrases. We caught you. Well, I am, but here's why I'm doing it. Very interesting. When we get to the seven letters to the seven churches, we're going to see that each of the ways Jesus was described here in chapter 1 is going to be a way he introduces, uh, introduces himself to a particular church. The, his description here will correspond to the need of that church. For example, let me, not for example, well, let me read to you the opening of each of the seven letters. It won't take but a minute. In chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And so that image is going to have a particular interest to the church at Ephesus in terms of how Jesus is going to speak to them and correct them. Revelation 2, 8. To the, uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, it will have a special meaning to that church. Uh, 2.12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, who has the key of David and who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. It makes more sense to me that we should wait to try to define and understand these images until we see what Jesus intended them to mean as he applies them to his counsel to each of the churches. I mean, we could look at white hair and talk about how it signifies age and wisdom and these kinds of things. But it'd be better to see how God was applying that specifically to the problem in a particular church. So I don't know, it'd be interesting, you know, if the Lord was writing to us today a separate letter from these seven, he would introduce himself by saying, I am the Lord 
who, and he'd give us a description of himself that fit what we needed to hear so that we could be corrected or commended or whatever the situation would be. So that's why we're skipping these. It would be, number one, redundant to look at them twice, but also we're gonna miss some of the meaning if we just assign them different ideas. Uh, so we'll get there. Overall, John said that Jesus' countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. It was solar power to the max, right? I mean, just, you can't look at the sun, but John could look at Jesus shining as the sun, greater than the sun. There's just a, a glory to it. Verse 17, and when I heard him, when I saw him, rather, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. John fell at his feet as dead. This wasn't the first time John had fallen before Jesus' glory. He did so when he saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. One commentator noted, on that occasion, more than 65 years earlier, Christ's face had shone like the sun, as John and the two other apostles had witnessed an anticipatory glimpse of the glory to be witnessed in full at Christ's second coming to earth. On this occasion, the aged apostle is distinguished as being the only one to be given a second foreview of that glory. Then he says, he laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. You know, I was thinking about this. Jesus always wants to alleviate our fear. He knows that we're a fearful people. Uh, he's uh, aware of that. Uh, and he wants to move and act in our lives to alleviate our fear. If you're a parent, you want to alleviate the fears of your children. It's getting harder and harder in our world to do that, and you're thinking of different ways to do that, but that's your great desire, isn't it? To, that they would not have fear uh, and, and trepidation. And so we need to see Jesus always as the one who wants to take our fear from us. Here, he had to touch John to do it. John fell at his feet as dead, and so Jesus touched him, and he accompanied it with some reassuring words. Jesus wants to touch you with the word of God. I don't know what portion, I don't know what scripture, I don't know what illustration, but all of us have fear from time to time and some of us have fear all the time. You need to know and you need to believe by faith that Jesus wants to alleviate that fear. He doesn't want you to live in fear. He'll gently remove that fear from you if you will seek him for his touch and receive from him what you need to hear. A lot of this last few verses is about seeing Jesus in a particular way that he's revealed so that it ministers to your heart in a very powerful way. Verse 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. This gets the most valuable verse award maybe in the entire scripture. This is Jesus Christ's own outline on the book of the Revelation for studying it and understanding it. Remember doing outlines in school? Maybe you still do today, but it's all on your computer now. You just hit outline. But in school, you had to do outlines, you know. I was terrible at outlines. I was terrible at math. I was terrible in English. It's actually pretty terrible in, you know, everything. The other night, where was it? It was, must have been at the prayer meeting last night. Uh, we were talking about, you know, don't, don't think that God, you know, needs your talent and ability. I said, well, that's pretty obvious because I don't have any of that, you know. So I fulfill that in a big way. But uh, you used to have to outline, and I hated that. Jesus gives you a three-point outline for this book, 
And if your commentary on Revelation doesn't follow this three-point outline, you're just wrong. Because this is Jesus' simple outline. It's Revelation for dummies. Write the things that you have seen. What John had seen was the vision of the risen Lord walking in the midst of the seven candlesticks with seven stars in his right hand. Chapter 1, those are the things John had seen. Chapters 2 and 3 are going to contain the second division, the things which are. Seven churches representing the church age are the things which are. And then from chapter 4 through the end of the book, we're going to read about the things that take place after this. We'll see all of the future events from the church age forward. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. A mystery in the Bible, I've told you before, is something previously concealed that is now revealed. That can't be any more illustrated than here. Jesus says, I'm going to show you right now the mystery of the seven stars I just told you. Here's what they mean. And so John had no idea what he was talking about until Jesus told him and told us. The word for angels is messengers. Angels are many of their functions, but uh, many other functions, but they function as God's messengers. You see them often bringing a message uh, to the human race, right? And so the word for angel is messenger. Now, a messenger can be the, either a, an angelic supernatural messenger or a human messenger. So when we read this word, we don't know if he's talking about an angel or a human being. Each of the seven letters is addressed to the angel of the church in that town. For lots of reasons I don't want to go into, it's doubtful that they are angels, that they are supernatural. I don't mind if there's a guardian angel for each church. There's some indication in the Bible that's true. There are guardian angels, uh, and each church might have one assigned to them. But it doesn't make sense that that angel, how would that angel deliver the message? He didn't appear. He didn't manifest himself and give the message for one thing, and so it's, it's all behind the scenes. So not an angelic being. If they're men, who are they? Well, C.I. Schofield, he noted that the natural explanation of the messengers is that they were men sent by the seven churches to ascertain the state of the aged apostle. And so in his mind, they each would bring this message back and relay it to the church. One of the problems with that is the message was one scroll. It, it was, they didn't each get a copy of it. They didn't go down to Kinko's or Staples and copy out the scroll to take to their church. It went from church to church. So a messenger, so it may be a one human messenger would deliver it to all, all the churches, but it doesn't say that. It says the messenger of the church at here. And so now you're left with somebody in the church who was going to do what? Give a message. And I would suggest to you that it's likely that it's just the pastor of the church. Not in some special way, not in some elevated way, but uh, it would fall on him to deliver the message and to read the book. Now, there's an interesting verse near the end of the book of Daniel. Talking about the end times, Daniel wrote this. He says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. So that ties in with what we're talking about today, uh, being bright lights for the Lord. And then he said, those who turn many to righteousness are like stars forever and ever. So he's talking about human beings who shine brightly, and he calls them stars. The stars Daniel spoke of were human beings, and it's perfectly biblical, therefore, to identify the angel star of each church as its pastor. Now, 
To call any believer a star sounds strange to us because we have our connotation of the word star and no pastor ought to be one. We don't need any celebrity pastors, basically. Uh, that's, that's not an office in the church. You have pastors, teachers, evangelists, and people with gifts. There's no office of celebrity pastor, okay? Uh, so we need to be careful. I'm, I'll step down if I need to, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I have a funny story I can't tell. But anyway, <laughs> no, I'll tell it anyway. It, it's nothing bad, but um, one time it was suggested. Yeah, we have a church board and great men, wonderful men. And one year, years ago, somebody suggested we look into getting key man insurance. I don't know if you know what that is or not, but sometimes at a, at a big church, there'll be a key guy. And the idea is that if that guy dies... Uh, goes to heaven, then maybe the church will kind of die with him because he's the key man and stuff. And so I checked into it. My, our insurance guy I've been with with like 35 years, he said, he said, yeah, you're not going to qualify for key man insurance. <laughs> I was happy about it, to tell you the truth. But so that's what we think of. We think of this, but he's just saying it's a uh, believer shining brightly who is bringing a message. I get correspondence all the time. It's addressed to the pastor or Pastor Gene, but it's intended for me to, you know, to do something to the whole church. And so uh, sometimes we make a mountain out of a molehill. It just makes sense that somebody has to deliver this message, and uh, I'm sure that they would pick the pastor. Uh, and what a joy that would be. Just like today, I'm bringing revelation to you. We're equal. We're recreated equal, right? Uh, but somebody has to teach, and that happens to be me. Uh, and it's me because I have no other talent or ability or skill. And so you can leave here thinking, if I learned anything today, it was from God because there's nothing Gene can tell me. Right? I'm so excited about that. One of the most exciting things that ever happened to me here at Calvary Chapel years ago, I was at the, it happened at a, men, well, it didn't happen there, but a new guy started coming to the men's uh, morning fellowship. And uh, I attend, but I don't teach that. The boys have been teaching it for a long time. Jacob's doing it now. And uh, I met the guy, and for, uh, until he finally came to church on Sunday morning, he thought I was a janitor. And I thought, man, this is, so, this is great. I should retire right now on a high note. But anyway, so the pastor, he's the guy reading it. In the early temple, or the earthly, earthly temple, excuse me, the Jewish priest would refill the bowl of the lampstand with oil, and he would trim the wicks. That was one of his duties. In the church age, your body is the temple of God on the earth today, and the temple of the Holy Spirit is the church itself, gathered together. You are to shine brightly and brilliantly. Non-believers see Jesus when you are shining. Uh, he comes into view, as it were. The oil lamp is a reservoir, as I said, with a supply of oil and a wick in order to give light tended by a priest. Jesus is the priest we are his lampstands on the earth. He wants to light us up, to unveil him, to reveal him to sinners, even to those in their own way who have either boiled us or banished us. We would look at this as an illustration and say, the oil is God the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus sent the Spirit to constantly fill us and be the source of our power and strength, and in this case, light. The trimming of the wick, we're the wick, the trimming could correlate to our tribulations as the Lord would cut so that we could continue to burn as bright as possible. One final thought then, and I don't want this to be a burden to anybody, but I have to say it. 
If Jesus Christ is tending our lamp, if God the Holy Spirit is the oil, if all we are is the wick, is it possible for the wick to suffer from burnout? Only if it has no connection to the oil. Only if it won't allow itself to be trimmed, as it were. And so I'm not saying that we can't be tired, exhausted even, to the point of, of you know, of failure. There's guys, Epaphroditus in the New Testament, he was sick unto death while he was delivering messages to the church as a messenger. And, and so that's not what I mean. But you understand, people say, oh, I'm so burned out. And I was pastoring this church, it's just so hard. I'm just burned out. They told me I'd only have to work two hours a week, and now I'm up to three. And, you know, or whatever. I, I don't mean to make fun of it. Well, actually, I do mean to make fun of it, but, or I wouldn't. But uh, if, if, if somebody is burned, if I start to feel burned out, I use myself. If I feel burned out, then I must not have a relationship with the oil. I must be working in the energy of my flesh. Because it's impossible to burn out the Holy Spirit. He dares you to burn him out. Go for it. Uh, you know, we used to sing. Remember that old song we sing? I got oil in my lamp, keep me burning. You guys remember that? I got oil in my lamp, keep me burning. And that's the idea. If you're burnt out, you're, there's no oil in your lamp, so you're where you shouldn't be. And, you know, quite honestly, sometimes people are where they shouldn't be in their walk with the Lord or in their service to the Lord. And they need to, you need to find your place and your purpose in the church of God uh, and, and realize and, and wonderfully realize you cannot burn up the energy of the Holy Spirit, nor can you do a better job of trimming your life than Jesus can. And so just enjoy being a Christian, shine brightly wherever God has put you. Uh, oppression and persecution will come. Maybe it'll be small, maybe it'll be great. We don't know. Don't ask for it, but know that you will be uh, understanding the patience of Jesus Christ when it comes. Amen?